Newlands Cricket Ground, sometimes thought of as the most beautiful stadium in the world, has been mismanaged into shabbiness and disrepair. In 2014, the Western Province Board disgraced a former South African great, Jacques Cullis, by not naming a grandstand after him. The 2024 New Year's Test against India was nearly taken away due to the state of the ground. This is the story of some of the greatest matches to ever be played at Newlands and how the ground has almost become a shadow of its former world-class self. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. A month ago, a high-powered Cricket South Africa delegation visited Newlands. It was four-strong and contained the CSA chief executive, the chairman of the board, and the chief finance officer. They flew down from Joburg because they feared that Newlands was in such a poor state that it wouldn't be able to host the test against India starting in the new year. They worried, too, that the MI Cape Towns matches in the 2024 SA20 would be jeopardized. They weren't worried for nothing, as we used to say at high school many years ago. I watched a match in this year's SA20 in February between MI Cape Town and the Pretoria Capitals. Other than the fact that the stadium announcer seemed to be gobbling amphetamines as he shouted at us all the time, it was great fun being at Newlands again. I hadn't seen either Phil Salt or Will Jacks, the two Englishmen in the flesh, before. I was impressed with both. Heinrich Nkir, with the moustache he grew in November, bowled his thunderbolts. K.G. Rabada looked out of sorts. Tiernus de Brain dropped a catch. Or was it Russi van der Dissen? It was a great game. We went home happy. But we did notice the condition of the stadium, which looked forlorn and grubby. The small scoreboard didn't work. The shade cloth on the brewery side of the ground had been removed from its scaffolding, so provided no shade. The underpass from the railway lines was flooded and full of litter. I was aghast. I was further aghast that the only person who seemed to notice the hopeless state of the ground in the general post-COVID-19 hysteria was Judith February, the former member of the CSA's interim board. She wrote about it in the Daily Maverick, and I was grateful to her for that. The state of the ground didn't get better, it got worse. Why wasn't Ashraf Burns, the president of the association, out there getting the stadium into good order when it mattered? Given the parlous state of the ground, why was his board not mucking in? It's remarkable to think what with Newlands cricket ground attracting so much negative publicity recently, that Newlands was host to one of the all-time great test matches only 12 years ago. The test against Australia, let's call it Vernon Philander's test for convenience sake, was over in two and a half days, you might remember, so there's some serious doubt in cricket circles as to whether the test actually ever happened at all. The sport itself has moved so far and so quickly in the intervening period, what with the T20 jamboree now a fact of cricket life, that 12 years ago seems like a lifetime away. In a way, it was a lifetime away. 
Jacques Cullis was in the twilight of his long and distinguished career, and Graham Smith, although five or six years younger than Cullis, wasn't far from calling it a day either. With their retirements, so went two protea greats. It was the end of an epoch, a period, an age. That age is a bit like Cullis's hairline. It seems to have aged tremendously between then and now. Without further ado then, to the test under consideration. It was played in November 2011, the first test of a two-test home series between South Africa and Australia. The respective captains were Smith and Ricky Ponting, with Smith winning the toss on the Wednesday morning and asking Australia to bat, which they did after a delayed start. With Ponting out for eight in the 17th over, Australia were in big trouble at 40 for three. That was to discount Michael Clark's role. Clark helped to make the forgotten test widely memorable. He was last out for the men in the baggy green caps for 151, scoring more than half of his team's runs in their total of 284. As an illustration of his command, he scored his runs relatively quickly, at a strike rate of nearly 86, with the next highest Australian score, Sean Marsh's 44. It was a kind of in-between total both captains could have made a decent argument about. Ponting would say that he lost the toss, and at 40 for 3 it wasn't a bad comeback. Smith would have felt vindicated in his decision, given that his bowlers, four wickets for Dale Stain, three each for Philander and Mornay Morkel, kept Australia pegged below 300 after sticking them in. Smith's good humour faded fast. He lost his partner, Jacques Rudolph, in the seventh over, and although he himself scored 37, it was a procession. Cullis and Ashel Prince both scored ducks, Hashim Amla scored three, Mark Boucher and Philander four each, and A.B. de Villiers eight. There were four leg befores, three bowls and a run-out, in South Africa's 96 all-out. The Proteas only batted for 24.3 overs, ending up 188 runs behind on the first innings. Philander, who opened the bowling with Stain in the Aussie second dig, had watched Shane Watson take five South African wickets in their first. Watson was often a handy customer with the ball, a good wicket-to-wicket bowler who worked the corridor of uncertainty with occasional brilliance. Halfway through Philander's third over, he bowled the inswinger to Punter, as Ponting was called, and trapped him in front. Halfway through his next over, he had Big Cheese Clark also trapped adjacent. Philander went on to take 5 for 15 in 7 overs, as Australia were bowled out for 47 in 18 overs. Suddenly, South Africa's 96 didn't look too shabby. Even more remarkable in the test many have forgotten was the fact that this was Philander's debut. He had no fear and no preconceptions, and no nickname. It was only a couple of years later that, while commentating, Shane Warne christened him, quote, the surgeon. This became location-specific in due course, and Philander, with his cool forensic probing, began to be called, quote, the surgeon of Ravensmead, the suburb from which he came. Australia's capitulation for 47 in the test you might well have forgotten left the Proteas with a tricky chase. It was a tricky situation for the fans, too. The test had started on the Wednesday, 
and so much had happened on the Thursday that it was difficult to keep up. Clark had gone to his 150 for a start. South Africa had lost 10 wickets and so too had Australia. All in all, 23 wickets were lost on day two, which might also account for why the test has been forgotten. It moved so quickly that it was impossible to remember. In precise terms, the tricky chase required South Africa to score 236 to win. At the end of Thursday's play, they had already lost Rudolph in their chase, but because they now knew what the total for winning the game was, they were handily placed overnight at 81 for 1. On the Friday morning, day 3 in other words, Smith and Umler resumed, needing just over 150 runs to win the match. Fans who had booked tickets for day 4 on the Saturday and day 5 on the Sunday began to realise that the test was rapidly moving beyond them. When Umla was out for 112 with the total on 2-2-2 in Friday's middle session, victory was all but assured. Come to think of it, it was a bit like a middle session. The South Africans never looked even remotely bothered in their chase. Smith got a polished 101, Cullis got two not out, and an incredible victory built on a fine eight-wicket debut haul from Philander was assured. Forgive me while I interrupt a sports story to tell you about the Luke Alfred Show Patreon. As you may know, being a writer is not the most lucrative career choice. Please consider making a small donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash the Luke Alfred Show. But for now, let's get back to the story. While we were waiting for play to start on the Wednesday morning, I fell into conversation in the press box with Peter Roebuck, who was then writing for the Sydney Morning Herald. As a writer, Roebuck was authoritative, keen-eyed, smart, and sometimes bracingly opinionated. He didn't talk to you as much as pull you along in the wake of his thinking. On that day, I can't be absolutely certain, he was in good form about Mitchell Johnson. He complained that although Johnson was lethal on his day, there was also the problem that Mitchell didn't really know where his deliveries were going. Neither did the batsman, and neither did you. It was entrancing, it was fun, but was it test cricket? On this occasion, Roebuck and I also spoke about the Gerald Majola affair, which had yet to reach its conclusion. I pointed out that Cricket South Africa would need to deal with the fact that Majola had paid himself a double bonus as a result of South Africa hosting the IPL successfully in 2009, sooner or later. Roebuck listened without ever giving me the impression that he was involved with the subject. He might simply have been being polite, as he waited for a subject with which he could fully engage like the slow decline of Zimbabwe, about which he was almost comically passionate. It was always difficult to tell with Peter. With the forgotten test rolling to a conclusion on the Friday afternoon, I filed my stories for my newspaper, the Sunday Times, and caught a flight back to Joburg. I was in the garden that Saturday afternoon, possibly playing cricket with the youngest of our three sons, when my wife told me something odd. She just heard on the radio news that an English cricket writer who had been covering the test at Newlands had jumped to his death 
out of a fifth-story hotel window. Did I know who it was? I was clueless. I didn't really think of Roebuck as English, although he was English, of course. I thought of him as happily international, the ultimate cosmopolitan cricket correspondent. It was only after I'd paused and made a few phone calls that I realized it was him. Outwardly, Roebuck was oracular, but inwardly he was a tortured soul. He had strange relationships with young men, who he frequently befriended. There were some Babuian youths living in his house outside Peter Maritzburg, and the relationship between him and them seems to have been ambiguous, financially one-sided, and possibly sexual. He jumped from his hotel room window when police banged on his door after the test match. One of the young Zimbabweans had made an accusation against him. I seem to remember thinking at times during the test that Peter was a little agitated. This said, memory isn't a precision instrument, and we trawl through the past with a net full of holes. I wasn't at Newlands to watch Roebuck, I was there to watch the cricket. Maybe he just lost a packet on the fourth race at Kenilworth, when the outsider he placed a hefty sum on ran seventh. The Roebuck tragedy took some of the colour and fun out of the forgotten test. It was one of the most peculiar matches I've ever seen. It was odd, for example, that such a low-scoring match, with two totals under a hundred, should also contain three centuries. Smith and Umler's hundreds were impressive, but Clark's big hundred was from another planet of cricket entirely. It was odd that both sides should be bowled out within a day, and almost beyond the realms of possibility that a team like Australia should be bowled out for 46. Then again, they had lost the Ashes at home earlier that year. It was nicely judged by Gary Kirsten, the Proteus coach, that he should give Philander his test debut on his home ground. Such confidence was repaid by Philander, who took eight wickets to earn a Man of the Match award. Philander was given confidence by watching Watson. The two were very similar, right arm over, wicket-to-wicket bowlers, with Watson only ever taking three fifers in his 60-odd tests. The Newlands test was also the beginning of the end of Cullis's long innings, an innings that brought him 45 test hundreds in 166 tests. I'd watched Cullis play in another peculiar test in Bengaluru. It was then Bangalore in early 2000. It was the second of a two-test series, South Africa under Hansi Cronier having won the first test in Mumbai. If you recall, that was the tour in which Cronier flirted with bookmakers, leaking them information and bullying the younger members of the side to underperform. India batted first in Bengaluru, scoring 158. In response, Gary Kirsten scored 79, and Nicky Boyer, 85, after having come in as night watchman the previous night. The really strange partnership, however, came from Cullis and Klusner, who put on 164 for the fifth wicket. Both scored 90s, saying later that Cronier had jokingly approached them about fixing, but they had fobbed him off. It ended up being one of Cullis's all-time best quotes, because he later said before the King Commission, quote, we said we were not interested and told him to get lost, but we used slightly stronger language. 
Klusner played well within himself, but Cullis creaked along like an overloaded ox wagon. His 95 took 432 minutes and 359 balls. That's a five and a half hour innings, which means that he was scoring about 17 runs to the hour. It isn't Kevin Peterson type scoring, certainly. I've always felt that Cullis's excessive caution in Bengaluru in 2000 suggested that he had strong suspicions about his skipper. It was an innings calculated to ensure that South Africa didn't lose, which they didn't. Although Mohamed Azruddin scored a scintillating 100 in the Indian second innings, it wasn't enough. South Africa won by an innings and 71 runs when it was still possible for a South African test side to win in India. Cullis was Newlands. He was educated down the road at Weinberg Boys High. During his early years in the Western Province Nuffield side, he was nicknamed Toddler. Although very technically correct, he lacked power as a younger player. Keith Richardson, his headmaster, remembered that he struggled to hit the ball off the square. At the end of his long test career, that was no longer the case. There was once a debate in Western Province cricket circles as to whether to name a stand at Newlands after Cullis. Cullis scored the third highest amount of runs in the history of Test cricket, 13,289 of them, and he took nearly 300 Test wickets. Cullis was the best batsman to ever play for South Africa. He was arguably the greatest all-rounder in all of Test cricket, with the possible exception of the great West Indian, Gary Sobers. If Darren Sammy can get an entire ground named after him, surely old Jacques can get a grandstand. In 2014, the then Western Province Cricket Association Chief Executive, Andre Udendal, said on the matter of the colour stand, quote, that idea has been raised by some people and we'll have to see where the discussion goes. Apparently, the discussion fizzled out and went absolutely nowhere at all. Come to think of it, not naming a grandstand after Jacques Cullis at Newlands is a little like failing to name a spacesuit after Neil Armstrong or an auditorium after Louis. The cricket-loving public of the Western Cape have long since got used to such japes by the Western Province Board. They just shrug their shoulders and walk away. When Western Province posted a loss of 8.8 million rand for the 2022-23 financial year, CSA began to get truly alarmed. By the time the CSA delegation flew down with a 28 million rand rescue package, it wasn't a moment too soon. The first 6 million rand of that package went to the refurbishment of the ground. Stands were painted. Light bulbs in the floodlight pylons were replaced. The small scoreboard was spruced up. The India test has been rescued. So has next year's SA20. But why was this allowed to happen in the first place? The entire Western Province Cricket Association board should resign. There's a nice symmetry to playing against India early in the new year because the self-same test back in early 1997 was witness to one of the finest catches South African cricket has ever seen. It happened in the second test of the 1996-7 series and involved the great Sachin Tendulkar. South Africa batted first, 
with a century to Gary Kirsten and not out tons to Brian McMillan and Lance Klusner. The home side stockpiled 529 for seven declared. India's chase started disastrously. At one point they were 58 for five when VVS Laxman trudged back to the pavilion. Tendulkar, though, was still there. With Laxman's departure, he was joined by Azuruddin. The two put on 222 for the sixth wicket. We talk of bowlers being unplayable, but that innings from Azuruddin was so eye-catching that he was unplayable too. There was nowhere to bowl to him. Most batsmen would hit you courteously to mid-off if you pitched it up six inches outside of off-stump. Azuruddin, who was always spicy, flicked you for four through mid-wicket. He scored his 115 in 110 balls and notched up 19 fours in the process. It was so carefree that he could have been playing beach cricket at Komiki with a sundry cast of holidaymakers, youngsters and old fogies like me. After Azza's dismissal, Tendulkar watched partners come and go. The follow-on was avoided. When Tendulkar was on 169, he hit Macmillan to the deep square leg fence. Macmillan was bowling round the wicket, and although Tendulkar's contact was good, he didn't quite get on top of it. Bacha, as I remember it, was in no man's land, neither on the boundary nor 15 metres from it. The ball arrived in a flash, and, out of reflex, Bacha stuck out his right hand as the ball went over his head. It stuck, and Bacha tumbled over, having taken a magnificent catch, reminiscent of some of the catches by his uncle, Ali, when Ali fielded a short leg for what was then the Springboks. Tendulkar was so dumbfounded he stood his ground, one hand on hip. He stood for a little longer as the inevitability of Bacha's incredible catch sunk in. Eventually, he wandered off, heavy-footed, the last India wicket to fall. South Africa batted a second time, declared and then bowled India out cheaply in their second innings for 144. South Africa won the test by 282 runs. Newlands was a picture, like a ship at sail on the sea, and the ground was packed to capacity throughout the test match. It was before the cricket-watching public of the Cape became jaundiced about how successive Western Province boards ran their ground into the ground. Newlands has been the stage to so much other than the forgotten test 12 years ago. Remember the over of fire Cullis had to endure from Steve Harmison? Remember Brian Lara's 116 against South Africa in the opening game of the 2003 World Cup? South Africa lost the match by three runs, and if ever there was an innings designed to be a party pooper, this one was it. And who could ever forget the 399-run partnership between Ben Stokes and Johnny Bairstow at Newlands in early January 2016? It wasn't a great passage of play for the Saffirs. Chris Morris's 28 overs cost him 150, as Stokes scored 258 and Bairstow 150 not out. I understand this makes for painful reading and listening, but consider this. Stokes scored his runs in 198 balls with 34s and 11 sixes. That's not pleasant for anyone whose blood is green, 
but you have to take your hat off to Stokes. That was one fine knock. So there we have it, a quick potted and very idiosyncratic recent history of Newlands. I hope it has made you understand how great a ground it is and how close it was to becoming like the Newlands Rugby Stadium next door. Empty, in other words. That future for the ground seems to have been avoided, for the time being at least. But it was a close-run thing. Too close for comfort, in fact. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please give me a five-star rating. As an independent creator, this podcast is made possible through your support. 